I remember when my family first went uh, to Ecuador. We had uh, been living in Cuba uh, before that, but uh, when Castro came into power, we were forced uh, to leave. So I was about nine years old when we went uh, to Ecuador. My parents were what were called pioneer missionaries back then, and that means that uh, they went where missionaries had never gone before. We went to uh, a little town in the mountains, in the Andes Mountains, high up in the Andes Mountains, about 10,000 uh, feet, called uh, Guaranda. And we were the only Americans living in the whole province of Bolivar. Now, in some ways, it was exciting living there. It was exciting living uh, in a place uh, where there were numerous volcanoes and where you had uh, regular earthquakes that would wake you up uh, during the night and you'd have to uh, run out hoping that the heavy tile roof wouldn't cave in on you and kill you. Uh, it was exciting to uh, be able to ride on horses and donkeys uh, because uh, that was the only way that we had of getting to the places that we needed to get. We didn't have a vehicle. And our at night, our house was lit up with Coleman lanterns and uh, candles because there was no electricity. It was an adventure. But at other times, it was pretty scary. I can still uh, remember one night, just a few weeks after we had first arrived, when a mob of people, uh, led by the local Catholic priest, surrounded our house and uh, demanded that we leave. And they started throwing stones and yelling, Yankee, go home. Well, fortunately, our landlord got wind of what was going on, and uh, he went to the chief of police, who was a friend of his, which is the way things work in Latin America. And after a while, the police came and broke up the mob, and everything was okay. But it was pretty scary going through that situation and realizing how many people didn't want us there. Not long after that, I ventured out of the house on my own to a little park that uh, was not too far from the house. And when I got to the park, a group of kids started to follow me and uh, to make fun of me because I was on crutches. I had a rare leg disease called leg perthes, and I was on crutches until I was uh, 12 years old. I tried to ignore uh, the kids, but uh, they began to get more and more aggressive and started uh, pushing me and shoving me. And I got scared. I thought they were going to beat me up. But then all of a sudden they started to back up and I heard this voice from behind me that said, Dejenlo, leave him alone. And I looked around and it was my older brother, Paul. I was small and vulnerable, but Paul was a big boy, even for an American boy. 
But next to these little Ecuadorian boys, he seemed like a giant. I was easy pickings, but they didn't want to have anything to do with him. There are lots of times in life that are like that, aren't they? When you realize that unless someone else helps you, you could be badly hurt. The disciples of Jesus were about to find this out. Up until now, Jesus had been with them physically. And Jesus was pretty popular among the people. Just a few days before the text that we read, you'll remember that Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem by cheering crowds who were yelling, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Now Jesus had himself suffered opposition. You'll remember that at the beginning of his ministry, Satan tempted him. Tempted him while he was in a very weak condition. And Satan was still on the scene. After Satan had tempted him that first time, the Bible tells us that he left Jesus for a more opportune time. Satan had been attacking Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. And Jesus had also experienced the opposition of the Jewish leaders, but he himself had borne the brunt of that opposition, not the disciples themselves. But that was about to change dramatically because Satan was going to be attacking the disciples directly. And the people that had opposed Jesus, the Jewish leaders, would be opposing them as well. It was on this very evening that Jesus had said to his disciples, if the world hated me or hated you, Keep in mind, it hated me first. But compared to Jesus, the disciples were small and vulnerable. They were easy pickings. And that must have been a very scary time for them. Without someone else who could help them, they could be badly hurt. But like me in that park in Ecuador, the disciples weren't alone. Jesus, their older brother, was with them. Jesus wasn't going to be with them physically anymore, but Jesus was for them, and that would make all the difference in the world. Even though Satan and the world are against us, Jesus is for us. And that makes all the difference in the world. How does having Jesus for us make all the difference in the world? How does it 
help us? Well, our text mentions two ways. First of all, Jesus prays for us. And secondly, Jesus prepares us for opposition. First of all, Jesus prays for us. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I'm always amazed at the deep, deep love that Jesus had for his disciples. Even though they had already failed him numerous times and would do so again in the future. Remember, this is the night of Jesus' arrest. Shortly after that arrest, he will be tortured and humiliated, and finally he will be crucified. He, more than anyone else, was the one who needed help and comfort. And yet, his concern at this time is not for himself, it's for them. It's for the disciples that he loves. The repetition of the name Simon, Simon is a Jewish way of emphasizing what Jesus is saying and showing his deep concern. Satan has demanded to test Peter and the other disciples. The word you in Verse 31 is plural. It wasn't just Peter who was going to be tested, but all of the disciples were going to be tested. They were going to be sifted as wheat. And Satan was hoping that they would prove to be mere chaff that could be easily blown away. But... But, says Jesus, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, Satan is a strong and fearsome adversary. And he means us nothing but evil. Nothing but evil. But we also know from the rest of Scripture that Satan can only do what God allows him to do. Even though Satan is a rebel against God, he still serves and can only serve God's purposes. Satan meant this test for evil. But God meant this test and the tests that he sends into our lives for good. Does it underwhelm you a little bit that in the face of this demonic attack that Jesus only prays for his disciples? Couldn't he have done more? Prayer seems like such a feeble thing 
to offer for someone who really needs help. But the very fact that this is the help that Jesus offers should give us cause to reconsider the helpfulness of prayer. Think about it. When we pray for someone, we invoke the help of God Almighty on behalf of that person. What more could we do? I think it's significant that the last thing that Jesus did for his disciples, whom he loved deeply, was to pray for them. Here here was the man who had changed water to wine, had fed over 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes, had calmed the winds and the waves merely by speaking to them, who had given sight to the blind, who had raised the dead. Could he not have done something miraculous to help his disciples? But what Jesus did was to pray for them. Don't underestimate the power of prayer. And certainly don't underestimate the power of Jesus' prayers for us. Satan means us nothing but evil. But God meant this test for good. And Jesus' prayer is what enabled the disciples to come through the test in a way that benefited them and glorified God. Peter and the other disciples were too weak to pray for themselves. As we see later on in the Garden of Gethsemane, But Jesus had prayed for them in their weakness. And Christian, be encouraged by the fact that Jesus prays for us, too, in our weakness. You see, there there is a man in heaven who knows us who understands us like no one else, and he knows our weakness. He knows that we are careless about temptation and that we are prone to failure. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted In every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus, the man who is also the Son of God, serves as our high priest in heaven today, offering up prayers for us, invoking the help of God Almighty 
on our behalf. Don't underestimate the value of that. In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, it says, But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. He always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is continually praying for his people. Don't underestimate that. Now, we know that in spite of Jesus' prayer for Peter, that he failed. Peter failed, but his faith did not fail. That's important. Peter failed, but the faith that Jesus prayed for did not fail. Because Peter is later granted repentance and is restored to his position as an apostle. Remember, Satan meant this test for evil, but God meant it for good, and God's good purposes were accomplished in Peter's life. Peter was humbled by his failure. Peter had to learn that he was not as strong as he thought he was. Peter had to learn that the best of men is a man at best. That he who in his own strength confides, his striving will be losing. Peter had to learn that there's a difference between making courageous statements like he makes in verse 33 and actually acting courageously. Peter had to understand his own weakness so that he would learn to depend upon God. And Peter also had to understand his own weakness so that he would be better equipped to strengthen his brethren. In our Sunday school class on the book of Job, Uh, One of the things that we have seen is how terrible his three friends were at comforting Job. They had no compassion for Job because they had never gone through what Job was going through. I don't think it's any accident that it's the Apostle Peter that writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, Verse 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Peter's failure, painful as it was, made Peter a more humble and a more loving man who could strengthen his brothers. Peter put his failure to good use, and so should we. Remember, 
Satan means these tests for evil, but God means them for good. And Jesus, our high priest in heaven, is praying for us that our faith may not fail. And that makes all the difference in the world. Jesus is for us, so Jesus prays for us. Jesus is for us, and so, secondly, he prepares the disciples, and he prepares us for opposition. Uh, Verses uh, 35 uh, through 38 here are simply a way of telling the disciples that the times are changing. There's going to be a radical change in the way that they must operate. Up until now, Jesus has been there with them, and they have only been ministering to Judea, a very small area. And they have been ministering to their own people who, for the most part, were friendly to them. But now, the mission of the church is going to expand dramatically. It's not going to be localized in Judea. It's not only going to be to the Jews, but the mission of the apostles would be to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. This is going to require more preparation. This is going to require different tactics, and it's going to require a greater amount of courage than they have had to demonstrate so far. By comparing the first mission that Jesus had sent them out to in Judea and the mission that he is about to send them out on, uh, Jesus is is making a comparison that is like between preparing for a hundred yard dash and a marathon. It doesn't take as much preparation to run a hundred yards. I venture to say that just about everybody in this room could run a hundred yards. But I doubt, let me see, the wheats are not here today. Uh, Nobody in this room could run a marathon. Not without preparing for it. Not for having a plan for it. And not being willing to exert the effort and suffer the pain that is required to run a marathon. I'm not going to say a whole lot more about this because while Jesus is showing his concern and his deep love for disciples here by helping them to understand what is coming, the disciples didn't. And perhaps the most telling thing that Jesus told them is found in verse 37 
where he says, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Remember, the disciples had been hoping all along that Jesus was going to establish a kingdom. Even though he had told them that he was going to Jerusalem to die, they just couldn't believe it. They were not in accordance with that uh, plan. Jesus, with his concern for his disciples, wanted them to know that when they suffered all of this opposition all of a sudden, and in the future as they took the gospel into the whole world, that this shouldn't take them by surprise. It's all by design. The plan of God is being carried out exactly as God has said it would. When he quotes this verse from Isaiah 53, what he is saying is when you see me being crucified between those criminals, don't be dismayed. This is a fulfillment of scripture. This is God's plan for the redemption of mankind coming to fruition. It's not a pessimistic statement. It's an optimistic one that hopefully the disciples would take as an encouragement to continue with this mission in spite of the adversity that they were going to be encountering. Of course, the, the verse that uh, uh, a lot of people are interested in is uh, verse uh, 38, or, or excuse me, in um, uh, 36 and 38, where it says, he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. And then in response, the disciples say, Lord, look, we have two swords, and he said to them, it is enough. What, is Jesus really saying here that the disciples are to arm themselves to uh, take uh, the gospel into all of the world? Well, it's doubtful that that is what he is saying. Uh, probably he's speaking symbolically here, uh, talking about the fact that, again, they're going to be encountering great opposition that might justify uh, having to defend ourselves with a sword. Really what he's trying to convey to them is people are going to hate you so much that they're going to come after you that way. But it's basically just a warning to prepare for that opposition and not actually telling literally to arm yourselves so you can defend yourselves. And in fact, uh, we see later on that when uh, Peter uses the sword against the high priest's servant, that uh, Jesus rebukes him uh, for that. Also, when Jesus says, it is enough when they say they have two swords. Two swords is enough for 11 men? Two swords is enough for what? Probably what is going on here, although I will admit that this is conjecture, is that Jesus is being sarcastic with his disciples, realizing that they don't understand what he is talking about. They don't, they don't get it yet. And so instead of continuing this conversation and trying to explain it further, he just cuts it off and says, it uh, is enough. And as uh, I said, the, 
there is no evidence of the sword ever being used to propagate the gospel uh, throughout uh, the New Testament. We know that, that Paul uh, suffered attacks time and time again, and yet there's never any indication that he tried to defend himself with uh, weapons. Actually, if you look in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and see all the bad things that happened to Paul, I don't think an AK-47 uh, would have been enough uh, for him. Uh, he was constantly uh, being attacked. And we also know that the early church actually rejoiced in suffering for Christ and even suffering to the point of death. One of the early church fathers, Tertullian, commented one time that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. And the more we are mown down, the more we thrive. That has characteristically been the attitude of those taking the gospel into other places of the world, to not use weapons uh, against the people they are going to, but recognizing that there will be stiff opposition uh, to the mission that they are trying to carry out. And that is what Jesus was hoping to prepare his disciples for. Uh, we have a saying, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. He is simply telling his disciples here, uh, out of his concern for them, out of his love for them, uh, be ready for what you are about to experience. So Jesus shows that he is for his disciples by praying for them, and by preparing them for the opposition uh, that they are going to face uh, from a hostile world. Even though Satan and the world are against us, the fact that Jesus is for us makes all the difference in the world. Earlier this week in our men's uh, Bible study, we were talking about the fact that it's so hard to develop a relationship with a God that we cannot see. And it's so hard to trust someone that we cannot see and furthermore do not always understand in terms of the way he operates. And as I was preparing this sermon, that conversation came back to me and I thought of these verses that speak about the high priestly work of Jesus in heaven for us. And I thought, yeah, it's, it's hard, but with Jesus, it's a little easier to understand because we really can't cry out to God. God, you are in heaven, and we're down here, and you don't understand our situation. You don't understand the pain that I go through in this world. You don't understand the disappointment and the disillusionment. You are far above all of that. But with Jesus as our high priest in heaven, we can't say that. 
Because Jesus is one of us. He is the Son of God, but he was also and is also a man. And he understands everything that we go through. He knows us. He knows our weaknesses. He knows what we have had to endure. And he is using his influence in heaven for our good. Even though Satan and the world are against us, the man Jesus, who is in heaven, is for us. And that makes all the difference in the world. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a God who will not let our faith fail. Father, we acknowledge that we fail. But because of who you are, because of the efficacy of Jesus' prayers on our behalf, we know that our faith cannot fail, that you have a good purpose in the tests that you send into our life. And Father, we pray, as you did with Peter, that you will use these failures in our life for good, to strengthen other brothers and sisters who are also struggling with their weaknesses. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.